This week we hear from pastor and writer Mark Buchanan on the relationship between walking and living the good life, right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello and welcome back. One of the key thematic areas we focus on here at Upper House, areas that we call pathways, is spiritual formation. There's a lot that goes into our understanding of spiritual formation, uh, but one of the things we focus on are spiritual practices, regular and repeated acts that create patterns of movement and patterns of thinking that align our whole selves with the truths of God's intentions for creation and with the gospel. Now, when you hear spiritual practice, you might think immediately of the usual suspects, praying, worshiping, Bible reading, fasting, and others. But what about walking? Jesus, after all, asked people to come and follow me. And Jesus walked almost everywhere during his ministry. It's such a common daily activity for most people. What spiritual worth can walking provide for us today? So this is a very basic entryway into our conversation today. And joining me to set this up is the executive director of Upper House, John Terrell. Hi, John. Dan, nice to see you. Well, thank you for uh, doing this interview that we're about to hear. Uh, I thought I would just ask you first, we're talking about a book called God Walk, Moving at the Speed of Your Soul. What drew you to want to read a book about walking and spiritual formation? Well, that's a really good question. I'm a walker. Uh, my colleagues know that I take breaks during the day and I in, incessantly check my um, my little smart watch that uh, tells me how many steps I have. So I've been a walker for about four years, really paying attention to the physical activity of walking. And I, I guess that habit or that discipline has, um, has even deepened in the season of COVID. Mm. It's been a, a way for me to process things, to to get out um, from my either work office or home office, a way to experience God in fresh ways where in so many, in so many ways in this season, I've felt, and so many of others have felt bounded. Yeah. I also love to walk and I feel like also in this season, it creates a way to connect with a community that often, at least you're connecting with the spatial aspect of a community, even if you're not able to meet um, uh, person to person in this time. It, at least there's some type of connectivity with the land, with the buildings, with um, the shapes of things uh, through walking. For sure. And it's also been a season where I have taken advantage, particularly in the early days of COVID, when we were feeling so restricted to be to even be in the same room with, with other um, people. Um, but I, I never gave up the habit or the invitation um, to, to go for a walk with a friend. It was a, a, a real way to experience um, windshield time. I, I know a lot of folks enjoy drives together, but windshield time, so to speak, um, outdoors, uh, in conversation, in a way that was was safe. And it just reminded me of how important this practice is in my life. Yeah, that's great. 
So in some ways, uh, the arrival of a book called God Walk during 2021 is really prodigious. The author of the book is Mark Buchanan. Can you tell us a bit about Mark? Sure. And Mark, one of the things that comes out in the interview is Mark, um, you know, wrote the book long before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but it, it sort of came out right at the front end of the pandemic. Um, and so the timing was really interesting. And I asked him um, a little bit, a little bit about his learning, um, just interacting with readers about the book uh, in a time of COVID. So he has some interesting insights on that. Mark is Canadian and he lives in Cochrane, uh, Alberta, Canada. It's a beautiful country. I just, I got lost for quite some time just watching videos of that part of the world. Um, he's a, a husband and a father. He's a teacher, a speaker, a pastor. Um, he's an author. He's written nine books, um, eight are nonfiction. He just uh, released a, a fictional account of the life of David, which I think is going to be the first of a trilogy. Uh, he's the professor of pastoral theology at Ambrose University in Canada. He's a musician, an outdoorsman, a scuba diver. He rides motorcycles. He's a fisherman. He does a lot of things I don't do, but that I want to do. <laughs> so I think I was drawn to him by his love for the outdoors. And it's really apparent when you hear the interview how much he loves people and how much he loves God and, and, and God's people. And he just has a real pastor's heart and a teacher's sensibility and a way and, and, and an author's pen, an author's mind. And so he he brings all of this together in a way that is really truly magical and um, really, as you read his writing, you know, really brings his words bring a lot of life and vitality. Mm. That's great. And you had a good, a, a deep conversation uh, with Mark that we're about to uh, listen to now. What's just a major takeaway you had from both the book and engaging with Mark about walking as a spiritual practice? Well, I think Mark uh, approaches the history of walking uh, and its relationship to the Christian faith historically, but then he deals with it holistically. So he covers the emotional benefits, the physical benefits, the relational benefits, and the spiritual benefits of walking. And there are a lot of things that are obvious about that. We, We know a lot about the the history of spiritual pilgrimage and how important that is even today in some uh, spiritual practices. Um, but he has some really interesting chapters. Um, he has a chapter around sort of the emotional health of walking, and he has, he has a whole chapter about walking with animals and, and, and what they do for us. And I found that um, to be a really powerful chapter. He has, uh, in the section on spirituality, he has a I think the, t- the title of the chapter is something like Exercising Demons, um, and he doesn't quite go that far. He says really that walking allows God to deal with our diabolical proportions. But think about all the times where, I, at least in my life, I did the smart, wise thing, and I s- stepped out and took a walk mm. and, um, and had a conversation with God or just let, allowed God to minister to me in a way that, um, brought wisdom and um, and clarity that I wouldn't have had had I reacted in the moment. Yeah, fascinating conversation. Thanks, John. As always, we invite you, the listener, to leave us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you're listening on, or to send us a comment at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. So without further ado, here's an Upwards conversation with John and Mark Buchanan. So, Mark, um, I 
enjoyed reading about you and um, enjoyed being on your website, looking at some of the photos. You're a Canadian, and I think uh, thus far, probably most of our podcast guests have been uh, American citizens, but that's not probably entirely true, but just going on recollection. But tell me a little bit about uh, what you love about being a Canadian, um, because I think it'll be intriguing and interesting to our our audience. And then I want to ask you about your particular city. John, I'd love to talk about that. I uh, think many of, of your listeners would be surprised at how modern Canada is. I, I travel all over the world and I don't know a country that is as modern. So the cities have a, a, this sort of thing that they were birthed yesterday feel about them. And yet you can travel from most Amer- uh, for, for most Canadian cities and within even a large city within half an hour, you're into pure wilderness. So where I live, and you said about that in a moment, it takes me about 20 minutes to get into wilderness where you could get eaten alive, literally. And that combination of this uh, state-of-the-art kind of newness in the cities and the towns themselves with this you know, primal wilderness is, it's, it's intoxicating, exhilarating. It sounds fascinating. When you say modern, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, uh, nothing's really old in Canada. So we actually, with community I used to live in, there's this big battle over a heritage building and the owner wanted to tear it down. And there's this massive community protest. Heritage building was 80 years old. So, you know, uh, certainly in Europe, that's ridiculous. 80 years old is, is basically just fresh, fresh made, fresh minted. But even in many American communities, that's, that's not old. And so there's a sense of everything kind of gleaming new. But also technologically, Canada is actually a leader in, in Nash, or an international leader. So some of the software companies, a lot of the technology, a lot of space technology comes out of Canada. Tell me about your home city. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Cochrane? Yeah, Cochrane. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, and, and what makes your part of the world so special? Right. So we're right beside, we're about 30 minutes drive to Calgary, which is a world-class city on the Bow River, one of the prettiest blue-green rivers you ever want to set eyes on. It's this meandering river, very clear because it comes straight out of the Rocky Mountains. Cochrane is west of Calgary, so we're right beside the Rocky Mountains. I, I, I came back moments ago from a walk, and uh, it's a gorgeous day here, and the Rockies are in full display. They still have snow on them, uh, which they do most of the year. There's this fresh flow of water coming into the city from those mountains all the day long. And then I, I, we're in what's called the foothills. So it's interesting, Calgary... On the east side, it's pure, you get into pure prairie land. It's flat. On the west side, where I am, you're in the rolling hills uh, leading up to the Rocky Mountains. So it's both big sky and big earth country. Now, your, your list of hobbies is quite impressive. Um, scuba diving, fishing, music, guitar, reading, riding your motorcycle. Tell me a little bit more about your hobby life. And it sounds like you've got a great place to, to engage all of these things. I love the wilderness. And that's partly what I love, as I said, about Canada, is that you can get into wilderness very quickly from wherever you are. And so love to be out either on, on foot in a hike or 
riding through some lonely piece of road on my motorcycle. For me, it's very much about both experiencing God's creation and tapping into my own creativity. And there's something about being in the creation that awakens that. I don't really even have to work at it. I know if I'm stumped, if I'm getting kind of groggy, sedentary, (laughs) all I need to do is uh, plan part of a day. I can get, as I say, to the mountains in 20 minutes. So I just need to go for a couple hour walk in the woods or get on my motorcycle and go ripping around. And I come back deeply, deeply refreshed. And we'll talk, I know, later about a book I've written on some of those dynamics. Yeah, I, w- I, w- I want to explore some of those habits that, that have been essential to your creativity. Yeah, and it's very much about creation in both senses of being in God's creation, appreciating, delighting in that which he's made, but also awakening my own a kind of desire, longing, ability to create. Let me turn a little bit here. Uh, I want to, I mean, you're so interesting in your background. You've, you're an author, you, you are, and have been a pastor, you're an educator, you know, you've got rich engagement of all these hobbies and so many things you're involved with. Um, I wonder if you could talk about an important life influence in any of these spheres, or maybe it's someone or, or something that's really been influential informing you as a person. Can you think of a person or an experience, if you look back on the the totality of your life, that you think, boy, that was just essential? I uh, never miss an opportunity to uh, give a call out to my grade five teacher, Michael Hayes, a man who didn't fit in the school system in that community where I was doing my schooling, uh, but connected with me, connected with the students on the fringe. And I was very much that. I was not a great student. And I had lacked motivation, and in some ways I think I lacked capacity to be a good student. And Michael Hayes saw me and summoned something from me. And it was particularly around the area of writing. So he really encouraged, I can't remember if it was just me or the rest of the class, but he encouraged me to keep a journal. And then he encouraged me to to be creative in the journal. So not just a quotidian you know, listing enumeration of the things I ate or the clothes I wore, but to explore the life of the heart, the life of the mind. And I began to write short stories in grade five and something happened to me. And so I, I always credit Michael Hayes with that one person after, you know, several teachers who didn't notice me or noticed me for all the wrong reasons, who saw me and saw something deep in me and began to call it, name it and call it out. Those teachers or those voices uh, in our early years are so important as we look back on those. Have you had a chance to to be back in touch with Michael? Uh, It's such an interesting story. So the year I had him as my teacher was his his first year teaching. He was 25 years old. As I say, he didn't fit in the school system, and he got fired at the end of the year. I spent the rest of many, many years looking for him. I finally located him the very last year he was teaching. He was retiring. And through a unique set of circumstances, I found him. We reconnected, and he invited me to speak at his retirement party. Hundreds of people. He was a remarkable human being that emerged. And so he invited me to speak. I was able to pay tribute to him in front of all these hundreds of people. At that point, I was a published author, 
and I was able to hold up a couple of my books and I was said, I don't think these would have seen light of day except for that man sitting over there. Wow. Yeah, that's what a great story. What a great story. Where'd you find him, by the way? Well, it was a weirdest thing. I, I was living about a community about 45 minutes from him and didn't know it. I'd been looking. This is pre, you know, where you can just sort of go on Google and track anybody down like the CIA used to be able to. And so I, I would go into a community and look at the phone book and phone the M. Hayes, Michael Hayes, never got anyone. And it turned out uh, at a lunch where I was, I was at a lunch explaining to somebody how I got into writing and somebody was eavesdropping and said, I know this man. <laughs> and they did. And they connected us. So, I mean, it's just this act of God, it felt like. It's an incredible story. If I keep asking you questions, I feel like this story is going to get even more incredible. So It, it, it is quite extraordinary. Like I, I, I'm stunned by it even time. And I'm not, there's no exaggeration. This is, um, I, I think about that man's influence in my life. I think about my my quest to find him, how he is right nearby, the circumstances when I did locate him, and then that I, I intersect his life at the very beginning of his teaching career and at the end. And both of us succeeded, rather. The school fired him after that year, and though he had passed me, the school failed me as a punishment for being a devotee of him. And my parents interceded and protested and they finally got me moved into the correct grade. But both of us were deemed complete failures back in 1972. And yet to stand there in um, a 2000, I think it was 2008 that I connected with him and say, uh, look, what, look what God has, has wrought. He was not a Christ follower but he, he was a man. He, he said he had a deep faith. So I trust in that. What a wonderful story. Well, your writing is so real, and we're going to get into the, the book God Walk um, because it is so personal. But I, I wonder if you have a, a, a season in your life that you would describe as a crisis of faith. And, and if so, what, what was that season like for you? Yeah, I, I've had at least two, but... Um, one was around several deaths of young people um, in, in quick succession when I was pastoring. And the second was around the death of a very close friend and colleague uh, a few years after that. The reason it became a crisis, I mean, the, I think those kind of profoundly disruptive experiences can, can cause that. But for me, uh, because I tried to lead in a way that I think didn't was was in some ways a denial of my humanity and my own breaking heart, and I tried to be stronger than I was and more certain than I was, and both of those things added up. Especially the first one, the loss, the three young men, all uh, within about a month of one another, all tragically. But because I, I think I tried to be stronger than I was, that there was an implosion at the um, at the end of that, that it was accumulating. And, and for me, it became, uh, you know, this moment, Walter Brueggemann talks about the Psalms move from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. This was a season of profound disorientation. And a lot of the things... I, I, I think I discovered in some ways some superficiality, both in my faith and in my soul. And so when I began to kind of come to this place where I had nowhere else to go but Christ, you know, this story and John said, we have nowhere else to go but you. 
tenderly, lovingly, Jesus began to take me um, and show me his goodness, his trustworthiness that was deeper than, greater than some of the kind of glib ways. I think I had um, sloganized ways almost that I had, had lived and practiced my faith. Did this come early in your in your pastoring life? Both of them uh, were uh, sort of midway through my pastoral ministry. And p- partly what would help account for it is I never intended to be a pastor. I had other dreams for me. And God opened up an opportunity that I stepped into. But it took me a while to figure out what it was to be a pastor, how to do it, and to have a really clear sense of call. I was in pastoral ministry 24 years, and probably nearly half of that, I was running on pure adrenaline and giftedness. And and we're not talking extraordinary, breathtaking amounts of giftedness, but enough to, in a small community, in a smaller church to get by. So some of the deeper soul work that really is necessary for, for sustainable life and ministry, I was neglecting that in, in favor of just another win, another kind of let's let's launch this let's build that and i was good at that i I had sort of raw skills for leading people for inspiring people for getting them to kind of rally around some big dangerous costly mission that's its own kind of addiction to kind of uh, have some success in that area and all of that exacerbated my neglect of some of the deeper stuff so in the end, uh, you know, I have a book on Sabbath, and, and, and in many ways, my discovery of the gift of Sabbath came out of the season where things started to implode. Good. Well, I want to come back and explore some of that in the context of how you're helping to train the next generation of pastors. Love to. We filled in our listeners with um, your bio, and of course, the the details are in the show notes as well. But if you had to to give section titles or chapter titles to to your life, which is so interesting, um, what are four or five, three or four, whatever comes to mind, chapter titles or section breaks that you might you might use to describe your life? Uh, the lost boy seeking seeking to be found. And I didn't. I mean, I became a Christian when I was twenty one, and I didn't understand my own lostness. Not just theologically and spiritually, but in terms of identity and vocation, that there is even a possibility of an identity and a vocation. I didn't get that until I was in my late teens. And so the first chapter would be around, you know, the lost boy seeking, seeking to be found in all those ways. Second would be, had quite a dramatic encounter with Christ at 21, came to faith but it would be the writer seeking a theme. I had already knew I wanted to be a writer, had no idea about pastoring <laughs> in the future. But I, I was learning how to write, but I didn't know about what I was going to write. So I was really th- seeking that grand theme of my life. So that'd be sort of the 20s, 30s. Uh, I did get at the end of, end of my 20s, 29 into pastoral ministry. I'd say the next 10 years in in many ways, John was the pastor seeking a call because the way I ended up in pastoral ministry, it wasn't like I'd ever had a, a, any inkling that God might be, you know, summoning me to that. So I fetched about for 10 years, really trying to understand what it was to be called to this work. And that began to solidify around year 10 in the next, um, you know, I'm 60 now, so the next 10 years would be, I think, 
kind of finding my stride that uh, this that would intersect with this times of crisis uh, going deep. But I also began to discover discover the love of Christ in that era that was quite breathtaking and deeply, deeply healing, healing of childhood wounds, healing of false selves, all of that coming up in 61. So this last decade, I think I'm seeking a legacy now, uh, both in ministry and in writing. I'm looking for ways to give things away. I'm, I'm more generous than I've ever been. I run writing retreats because I want to empower the next generation of writers. I teach many people. Go, uh, I teach at a seminary, so many going into some vocational ministry. I, I'm, aside from that, I have about ten people I mentor, mostly mostly pastors. Uh, so I, there's something that uh, in the last 10 years has been, it's all about how do I give, give whatever God's given to me, how do I give it away? Well, it's beautiful. I, I'm 54 and starting to pay attention to some of the things you are, certainly in the way I'm thinking about raising up the next generation of leaders. And uh, there, are, there are many uh, good examples of those who enter their 60s and 70s and, and really seek to give it away. And there are, there are those who, who cling, I think and maybe don't find that freedom. When I was first a Christian, I remember hearing and being riveted by a talk by Tony Campolo, and he was sharing some some of his research sociologically about people in their 80s that they'd asked, what would you do differently? I was 21, 22 when I heard him, and it stuck with me that they all said that they would take more risks and they wouldn't cling so much. <laughs> yeah, I just remember thinking, I don't want to be one of those people who's clinging. In fact, my wife and I, starting, I, I turned 61 in June. So my 60 to 70 year, we're launching a new ministry among indi- with, with and, and for Indigenous women. It's a, a healing and, and equipping center for Indigenous women. And uh, some people think we're, we're utterly crazy. And other people are saying, Man, I wish I had, you know, I, I wish I was kind of would, would take a leap like that. But in a lot of ways, John, it's such a, a natural kind of unfolding and outflow of my wife and I both came to faith when we were a bit later in life, me 21 or 18. And God has surprised us over and over and been there for us over and over. So why would we quit now? Thank you. I love the the way you've you've framed your life and the way you've thought about it in decades. And um, it sounds like you've got a really exciting decade ahead of you. Let's start to shift to your vocation as a writer. When did you first know that you wanted to be a writer? Well, it would go back to this grade, I was 12, grade five, Michael Hayes, I don't know if I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew that there was a power in story and language that was almost magical. That you can say, the dog leapt at the boy, and already you've invoked and evoked something that your your listener or your reader is entering into imaginatively with you. So you've said very little, but your reader is, in a sense, joining you in the creation of that story. And something about this whole world that can be constructed through language. I wouldn't have said it back then when I was 12, but I grasped it. I felt it. So I knew I wanted to create and probably with language and with story. At 18, I was not planning to go into college university. Up until I got into college and university, I was not a good student. 
I was mediocre. And so I, I wasn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to go to the university. I would have had to go to, to a community college. I wasn't motivated to do that anyhow. But at 18, after I graduated from high school, the, the writing bug really got into me. And I spent hours and hours of any free time I had writing stories. It was all fiction. And it was, again, I think mostly the, the power of creating something that had never existed before. It's almost a godlike power when you think about it. Um, and, and, and unique in the arts in the sense that you're inviting the collaboration and participation of the reader. So a painting is a done deal. You can ponder it and, and interpret it, but you don't, in a sense, complete it. Whereas all writing needs the reader to complete Something about that, I I got so con- uh, addicted to it, and I couldn't stop. And they're terrible stories. I wish I'd kept them, but I remember they. But I would bring them to work, and I would uh, I would leave them in the, the workstation, and people that I worked with would read them and give very encouraging comments, and they wanted more. And so that's you know that for a writer, that's just you know catnip. <laughs> And so I, I, and I also was in a job that was going, the job that where I'd leave my writing, I realized I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Punch a clock and do this tedious thing that I hate. And I'm only doing it for the money to kind of live for the weekend. And it was right around that time I also became a Christ follower. So 21, 18 is when it woke up. And I started to think maybe my future is writing. So I did enroll in a, a, a community college. It's the only thing I could get into. And I took the creative, a creative writing course and I fell, oh, I was so in love. <laughs> my teacher started to recognize a raw gift in me, started saying, you should read this person, that person. I wasn't a great reader up until that point. And so I started consuming massive amounts of literature and falling in love with literature. And so I then started pulling off A's, didn't know that that was even on the scale of, of grades one could get. <laughs> and and then easily got into uh, one of the premier universities in British Columbia, University of BC, and easily got into their creative writing program, which has produced in Canada the most number of award-winning published authors in, in, in a steady base in Canada. They only took a small group of writers every year, and I got in. And at that point, I knew, as I knew, as I knew, that uh, this, was, this was my future. Though at that point, I was still sort of in search for what will I say. I, I knew I wanted to say something, and I, I have gaining skills in saying it. But it was actually when I went to Regent College, um, when I was in my mid-20s, that I started to realize the, some of the great themes of my life. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit. I, I want to ask you about how you find your themes, how you get located on, a, on content. Because you're, you're really going to spend, in some cases, years with, with this theme, right, as you, as you research and explore and live it. Um, you've written nine, published nine books at this point. Uh, you know, dozens and dozens of articles. Um, you have uh, you've published nonfiction and fiction. How do you how do you find your themes, Mark, or how do they find you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit of both. I sometimes feel like the book we'll talk about a bit later in the podcast. I'm walking. I feel that theme found me. I feel the Sabbath theme found me. I feel I have a book called Things Unseen, 
And it's not about heaven. It's about what happens if you live in light of some an, an eternity. That found me. Other books, I feel that they somehow, they were in me already, and I just had to give them voice. How do I find them? Partly it's curiosity. I've never been one of those writers who wrote about what I knew. I wrote, I've always been one who, who's written about what I want to know. And so I... Uh, can write about you could hand me just about anything you could hand me you know probably a topic like astrophysics or something and I could probably generate 30 to 40 pages without too much kind of looking up things in Wikipedia then I hit the wall and if I'm still interested in the theme after I've hit the wall in terms of hit the wall in terms of what I what I know if, if I'm still curious if my curiosity has grown then I think this might be a book and then I'll start investing in the research. So it's very different from, I've talked to so many writers who they work the opposite. They've become sort of an expert in something and they realize, Oh my goodness, I've got this great storehouse of wisdom and insight that I've been accumulating. And I, I ought to share this with the world. And I read a lot of those books with great appreciation. I, I'm just not one of those writers. <laughs> Every book you've written, you've ever read from me is kind of me following breadcrumbs and, <laughs> and finally kind of articulate in a way. And I think, you know, um, one of my favorite writers, Bill Bryson admits that's how he writes. He just gets curious and then he goes chasing something and he's made a lot more money and sold a lot more books than I have doing it. But you feel kind of the, the energy, the the kid, like the childlike kind of, a wonderment in his writing. And I hope maybe some of that comes across in mine as well, that you've you got a guy kind of uh, on a, sleuthing things out and kind of reporting as he goes. So that's fascinating. You, you will chase the crumbs, so to speak, and you might generate, you said, 30 or 40 pages. Talk a little bit about your disciplines. That would require, I imagine, some, some pretty disciplined uh, writing habits. But how, how does that work for you? Love to. I mean, I've got the nine published books. I've got two underway. Uh, there's all the unpublished stuff. There's all the 30, 40 pages where I still have some, you know, it's in digital or print form, <laughs> those books I started that I lost interest in. But what I, I established years ago, and this came out of the writing school at, at University of British Columbia, they hammered into you that if you're going to write then write. You you set aside time for it. You show up for it like it's your day job. And that uh, is, is been the most important piece of my discipline, that I treat my writing even when I'm not under contract. And for many years, I wasn't. And some of the stuff I'm working on right now, I'm not. But I treat it as as important as if I have to show up for one of my lectures. I don't simply decide I don't feel like it today, so I'm not going to show up and do a lecture. For me, anyhow, but I, I would argue for virtually any writer, unless they're going to treat their writing as that central to what they do and and not, uh, not let themselves off the hook for that time they set aside, you're not going to get anything done. Now, while I say that, John, I'm also saying I don't wait for inspiration. I don't wait for feeling something kind of the you know the creative juices flowing or any of that i show up 
like the job I talked about where I punched a clock. I just had no, if I, they would track it because you're punching a clock. If you were a minute late, you would get so many demerits. And after so many, they, you know, too many, they'd fire you. So you knew you had to be there. And virtually every time I showed up for that job, I didn't feel like being there. That's actually a bit true of a lot of the writing. I just show up. It's in the doing of a thing that, that often the energy, uh, the excitement, shows, you know, is, is somehow awakens, but not always. I do it anyhow. And so for me, uh, I, especially when I'm working toward a deadline for publication, then I, I go to quotas, work quotas. I work uh, 1,500 words a day, or not a day, a week, actually. It's, it's hardly anything. It's like five pages a week, but add it up. Add it up over a year, and that's a book. You get the book. You get the book every time. I, that's all, that's my whole story. Doing a day job. My, my writing is not my day job. Doing a day job. Most of my books written when my kids were at home and young. My wife, I think, would say I was not a absent tea or neglectful husband. Getting a lot of stuff done around the house, and getting in in twenty years nine nine books published. Plus a lot started that never, and these probably a hundred and something articles. And I've never really felt uh, that I couldn't manage the the load. Five pages a week is all it's taken. That's great. Any sense of loss of the the writing that um, remains unpublished? You seem to be really free in that. Uh, Others would be, you know, I I could imagine myself trying to figure out how to package that stuff up. Yeah, some of it I felt like uh, it was reflect. It reflected the age and stage I was at, and I don't think I could I could go back and you know recover it meaningfully. I'd have to start again anyhow. Uh, my first book that I worked on for years and then abandoned was a novel that I have a fondness of feeling toward, but I don't think I'd ever go and try to make it work. I was in my early twenties when I started it. The one book that I started and got probably fifty. 60 pages into and it was actually the book on sabbath that interrupted that that book came to me <laughs> uh is a book on the the proverbs and i've never let that go and at some point i think i'll come back and write it and it was it was an approach to proverbs not a commentary but i noticed while i was a, a season of really steeping in the proverbs that there's a lot of anatomical metaphor. So it talks, you know, well, it's anatomical, it's not metaphor and it's it's literal. So it talks about the eyes and the feet and the mouth and the ears. And and I realized uh, the only way to really approach uh, a book treatment of Proverbs is to thematize it. You, You break it into themes. And this anatomical kind of structure, it doesn't capture all. So I had a plan for capturing the stuff that doesn't fit under that. But it was extraordinary how much of the material fit under these anatomical kind of categories. Probably some writer's going to you know, run with it and they're welcome to it. If, you, if, it's, if you've got it in you, go for it. But I, I, I was quite taken by that. And I particularly, I was... I've always been fascinated since I came to faith by the Proverbs because it's how to do kind of life in the, in the real world, you know, in the, in the places we work in the communities we live in the, in the places we shop. It's not this idealized pietized kind of um, 
dreamscape. It's actually, you've got a lousy boss and how do you navigate that? It's something about that has uh, right from the very beginning as a Christ follower got deeply drawn into that. So I, I may come back to that. It's a good, a good segue into, I think it's your last nonfiction book. It's not that old, um, but I think you've since published a, a novel, right? Yes, right. But I, I want to talk about God Walk, moving at the speed of your soul. And um, I'm curious about your own habits of walking. I know you're in a beautiful place. Some might presume that you, you know, I've got my Fitbit on and I'm almost um, wacky crazy, you know, trying to get my 10,000 steps. It's not quite like that for you. Uh, and so, yeah, tell us about your habit of walking. I walk. It would be a rare day where I wouldn't walk. I don't try to get 10,000 steps in. In fact, I don't have a Fitbit, so I don't know. Uh, I sometimes carry my phone, sometimes don't. And it sort of takes a rough estimate. But when I walk with my wife, if she has her phone, we'll compare. And they're so vastly divergent, even though we've walked the same route, that we know these things aren't measuring in a way a Fitbit would. So it's not about accomplishment or quotas for us. It's about the miracle of walking and the gift of walking. Uh, it's about the discoveries that one has internally, externally of walking, uh, relationally of walking. So, and I, I probably on average rock five to 6,000 if I tallied it up. So I'm not even trying to, like, I'm not trying to compete with a neighbor or anything like that. I, yeah, for me, John, I, I don't know why I came to this so late. I've always been, well, uh, you know, obviously we have legs and we can't, mechanical things only get us so far. So I've always walked, but probably for the last 20 years, I've become, a, I've been a serious walker, but I don't know why I've, it take, took me almost to the age I am to be utterly dazzled by the fact that we carry ourselves around and, and and can do amazing things with these legs underneath of us, carrying ourselves, but also, you know, um, going to places, getting up on things, whatever. And and I think uh, I, I have a chapter in the book about a friend of mine and explore the whole idea of what if you can't walk. And I think if any of us have lost the ability for a temporarily or permanently to walk, I think then we, we start to think, oh, my goodness. This was one of the great miracles and gifts of God to to people. Yeah. Who's the book for? Who's your audience? What do you hope to elevate or correct? Uh, What do you hope to say to your audience? Yeah, I'm struck that Christianity alone among uh, the major religions of the world doesn't have a corresponding physiology, uh, you know, some discipline like yoga or whatever. And yet we're, you know, we're, we're worshipers of the God come flesh, you know, come among us, the incarnational religion. And so I, I, I've written the book primarily for Christians to not, not that this would walking would be a complete substitute for all the forms of exercise that we, we ought to get, but was looking for a way to more realistically in real time embody their faith because I, I make the arguments in, in the book, as you know, that I think that the the discipline, the physical discipline around both Judaism and Christianity has always been walking. But it was so obvious to everyone that nobody thought to actually sit down and say that out loud. All the language of walking, Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God, God walks in the cool of the garden. What does God require of us to walk, you know, walk humbly with him? 
come walk with me, Jesus says. And then, you know, it starts to get figurative in John and Paul, walk in faith, walk, walk in light, walk in truth. But I think these are men who are walking around, especially Paul. So at, at some point, I, I think we have to reckon with why is that language so saturated from beginning to end? The scriptures, the very one of the last pictures of in, in Revelation is the nations walking in the light of their God. I think that I want to, to in terms of a reader, to say, uh, you've all, we've always had this discipline. We've always been working out faith, relationship, trust, doubt on our feet. And what if we, we recovered it in, in some meaningful, deliberate way? Have you noticed anything about the audience or the way the audience has received the book given the pandemic that has um, forced a lot of us maybe to to walk or pay attention to walking in new ways? Um, what have you learned in this last 15 months? I, well, all the walking clubs that have risen up around this book, I, I am on a f- quite regular basis being contacted all over the world by people saying, we got your book. I started a walking club. Would you come and do a Zoom meeting <laughs> and, you know, surprise our walking club or cheer them on or walk them through a chapter or whatever? I, I mean, it was interesting because the book was all a wrap. It was all produced. It was written. It was edited. It, was, it had a cover design, everything before the pandemic hit, but it released in, in the middle of the first lockdown last year. Good timing. We, we at, at the publishing house, uh, HarperCollins or Zondervan is the imprint. We're just stunned at, oh my goodness, this book's coming out <laughs> right in the moment where many, many people, they're only, not, not only are there, for, for many, their only form of exercise they could get was walking, but for many, they were actually for the first time really picking up an exercise because they're going stir crazy, cabin fever, crawling walls, <laughs> They couldn't take one more day in the apartment. They had to get out and do something, and they couldn't go shopping or to the gym. So it was sort of like this weird convergence of writing about something that suddenly had cachet. Suddenly there there was this vast audience. I look at the books that have come out of walking. I would imagine most of them written similarly before the pandemic. Uh, in Praise of Walking by uh, the, the Irish writer whose name eludes me. A number of other walking books sort of came out around the same time. So it was almost like God was kind of <laughs> stirring things up. Yeah, the timing on that is is really interesting. The history of walking in the life of the church. Um, I, one of the points in the book is that, again, this has been, it's so obvious that it's kind of forgotten in the Christian tradition. There aren't practices that are that are real physical, spiritual discipline practices that show up in some of the other religious traditions. Uh, And yet there is a rich history of pilgrimage and other things that have taken place in the life of the church. I wonder if you could comment on the role that walking has played in the life of the church all the way back to the earliest days to present moment. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the emergence of the pilgrimage at a, on a large scale uh, was connected with uh, the sort of the battles over the Holy Land and, and sort of uh, an early Pope giving kind of sp- special dispensation to those who would do a journey to the Holy Land. But they probably had, uh, well, I, I mean, I would think it, in, in the stories we have in Scripture, um, people who 
go on long journeys, beginning with Abraham, would sort of capture this long history, deep history of walking. But the pilgrimage is very interesting because it morphed over time uh, and became a walk usually to some sacred site, some, some shrine or cathedral. What I document in the book is that these walks were fundamentally penitential in nature. In other words, I was confronting, dealing, confessing, um, coming clear about something in me that needed reckoning or transformation. And the walking was sometimes almost a, a kind of a penitential walking. I, I, I sort of underwent some kind of deprivation. I walked in the sleet and the rain and the cold and among bandits or whatever, put myself at risk, went hungry, slept under you know open stars as, as a way of kind of righting some wrong. But I think the more profound effect that we can we can actually trace in in pilgrimage is some inner transformation that wasn't so much about inflicting uh, deprivation or punishment on the self, but but something that began to happen in terms of an encounter with God along the way. And so I, I think that tradition, I mean, it still exists, uh, but most mostly in a secularized form. So one of the great pilgrimage trails. Uh, in Europe is, of course, the El Camino. Uh, not that many people undertake. A lot of people are obsessed with doing the El Camino. I've never done it, but it's mostly for secular reasons. Not that I would uh, disdain that, but that kind of religious impulse has died away for the most part. And yet it still tends to bring some kind of encounter transformation with the self at any rate. What I also document is over time, we began to adopt large scale culturally, at least in the West, is things like marches, uh, walkathons, sort of things. So we're raising money or we're raising awareness or something. All very good. I, I'm not in any way critiquing these things in any substantial way. But I, I think the, uh, the one thing to note is as we especially we move from, from pilgrimage to march, and a march is a, as a demonstration. We're going to march on the square or something. We don't retain that sense that the deepest wrong, the deepest sort of thing that needs a confronting and adjusting is in me, not out there. <laughs> I think that that these things aren't going to have the, the, the quite the potency and the effect that they could have. I, I I think if we somehow combine pilgrimage with with some of the the contemporary marches, and we really, I think some of the early civil rights marches maybe had some of that dimension to it, but I think less and less are more, they're more ideologically driven now. But I think if we could somehow bring back into play that the, the pilgrimage is a part of a march and therefore I'm confronting dealing with the stuff in me, not just trying to change the stuff out there, then I think we could, we could see maybe some beautiful convergence. But right now, I think that these things have become uh, less effective than they, they otherwise could be. Mark, what role do guides play in our habits of walking? You've started to touch on this, that sometimes the guide may be more internal, but how should we think about walking with respect to our personal agency and God's agency? How do you think about that, and how has the church thought about that over the centuries? My wife's a spiritual director, trained spiritual director, and of course, most of her meetings over this last several months have been digital online. But both of us are more and more discovering potential of walking. 
And if she can, and I do this with a lot of the mentoring, if I can or she can, we'll go for a walk with somebody. So just this past week, a young man, I knew his, I know his father, I'd never met him. And he contacted me and he said, he's 22 or something. Uh, He's thinking about going into pastoral ministry. Would I meet with him? I said, I'll walk with you. So we met and we did about a, it was probably close to a five mile walk. Uh, It was along a river. It was gorgeous. It was a beautiful day. And we talked and occasionally we'd stop and we would reflect a little more deeply and and pray about things. John, the the sense of a a soul encounter, a young man I'd never met before. I'm almost 40 years older than him. And yet the sense of the spirit was kind of bristling, bursting, (laughs) brimming in, in the conversation. Uh, several moments where he would stop and he would be overwhelmed to the point of his eyes welling with tears because of some discovery he was having in the moment about God and God's love for him. And I'm thinking, I didn't, there's no agenda. <laughs> you know, he didn't even really have a plan of what he wanted to talk to. He just about, he just sort of thought I, I've been, a, you know, I'm an old guy who had been in ministry for a long time. And maybe I could learn something from you. And I didn't come with, okay, here's five things that you ought to know. We just walked together. And God encountered both of us, knit our souls together. I, I so love that young man by the end of that thing. I basically promised him, you know, up to half my kingdom. You know, anything you need, <laughs> anything you need. Part of that next decade of, of giving everything away, right? <laughs> totally. And so I look at that and I think, yeah, maybe it would have happened if we, you know, wasn't COVID and we could have met for coffee or something. I don't know. I don't know. But I've rarely had those kind of encounters across the table, especially on a first first go, like I had walking together. That's great. You have a wonderful and surprising chapter in the book entitled Walking with Animals. And I, I wonder if you could tell us about Graham and his dog, Judge. And then maybe a bit more about how dogs help us find, find God. And what does scripture have to say about the role of walking with animals? It's a, it's a wonderful chapter, and you tie a lot of really interesting ideas together. I've had so many comments on this chapter, um, both people being surprised but also appreciative. And I confess, uh, we don't have an, any pets right now. And, and We have, but we don't at the moment. When I was writing the book, I was thinking about all the people that I see walking their animals around the neighborhood and anywhere I go. And what a beautiful thing a, a, dog, a dog is. I, I talk actually open with a woman who in her neighborhood, I haven't seen her actually in the last couple of months, but she walks her cat, which is a, a bit unusual. But these gorgeous dogs, and they're of every size and description. Like, unless you were a scientist, you had no idea they're all related to one another somehow, right? I thought, there's no way I can write a book on walking without this, the gift of being with an animal um, that I, I do think goes right back to the the Genesis story where the task that God gives Adam before he makes the suitable helper in Eve is to name the animals, a lot's going on there, John, and uh, you know I don't want to pause to try to tease it all out theologically, nor do I think I could. But the fact that uh, God uh, interrupts this sort of search for the suitable helper by the name of the animals, I don't think that's accidental. I think partly God's saying, do you see anything in the animal kingdom that might be a good companion for you? 
Um, and and saying maybe no, in the end, you're going to need someone that uh, you can you can talk with and can talk back and you can share dreams and et cetera with. But I don't think it's a useless effort. I think that that there's probably a lot of creatures that Adam says, oh, my goodness, I feel such companionability with that horse or that dog. And I talk, talk in the book about my parents. Uh, sometimes I think in ways that were unhealthy, kind of pouring their they're kind of uh, almost confessing to an animal when their marriage was in trouble. Uh, in their later years, they, they had a beautiful co- companionable relationship with each other. And yet also with these, uh, my, my dad with the dog and my mom with a, with a cat. And there's something really lovely about it. Like, especially after my dad died, that my mom was all alone, a widower for, or a widow rather for 27 years. She just died this past year, but she was not lonely because of animals. And I wanted to pay tribute to this gift that God has given us in these beautiful creatures. You know, if dogs all derive from, from wolves, uh, the fact that most dogs are the gentlest, kindest creatures that a little baby can kind of crawl all over one and pull its ears. And it's going to put up with that. Is that not like a picture of God? (laughs) When, when year when we, we did get a dog as a puppy, a, a man got me a book called The Love of Dog. And, and I thought, oh, this is kind of irreverent, almost blasphemous. And yet it wasn't. It was a beautiful reflection on the closest we experience to the love of God is probably the love of a dog. I'm so profoundly happy to see you no matter what. So uh, two judges, the story of Graham and Judge. And by the way, Graham and his wife, Annika, just got a new little golden retriever, like a little puppy this past week. But Judge was this beautiful retriever, gold retriever that they got, and we knew him from a puppy. And there's this beautiful companionship. They, Graham and Anna have a beautiful marriage, but little uh, Judge and him became fast, fast friends. And Judge was always there from the very, you know, from the time they brought him home at eight months or eight weeks or whatever to sort of welcome Graham and go for these walks. And they live right beside uh, this forested mountain trails all through it. I've walked there with Graham. And every day they'd go for a walk. And, and so I, I tell the story of Judge and Graham for many years, keeping each other, com- walking together. It, companions, uh, Graham went through some very difficult times and G- Judge always there for him. Judge having some surgeries and whatnot and, and Graham there for him. And then that sad day when Graham summons, calls him to go for a walk and Judge doesn't have it in him anymore. He'd been slowing down. And then the, the the decline of this animal, and and uh, um, yeah, the the heartbreak of the day that they had to take Judge to the veterinarian for that terrible shot. I don't know, John. I, I the older I get, the more I'm in love with not only God but what He's created, people He's created, the, the creatures He created, the non animate things He's created. I'm in love with the creation, and not in some idolatrous sense. I'm in awe of it. That's maybe a better way. And I think that part of our loving God is is paying attention to that. So to me, animals, the wild ones, the domesticated ones, uh, all of them are somehow some glimpse of the beautiful, fervent, unbelievably creative mind of God. Beautifully told in the in the chapter, and I just so appreciate you recounting um, that story and just the gift that dogs are. And it is amazing that they 
maybe um, evolved from wolves and to, to think of that transition and the goodness of God. Talk, if you would, a little bit. You've got chapters, I think, that tease out each of these uh, subjects separately. But how would you describe the linkages among walking, paying attention, remembering, and praying? Yeah, I, they're still woven together for me, all those linkages, that I don't even separate them out over much. So as I say, I go almost always for a, a daily walk. Often it's with my wife. The, the walk I did today was with my wife. Uh, so we try to pay attention both to creation to, and to each other. But uh, a lot of the walking I do is on my own. And I don't sort of go out and say, I'm going to go, this is a memory walk, or this is a prayer walk, or this is a t- attentiveness walk. Uh, th- it all sort of weaves together. And so a couple of days ago, I went for a walk. I'm preaching on a passage out of John in a couple of weeks at a church that they've assigned to me. And it's been a long time, actually, since I've d- d- dove into John. I've been working out the exegesis and reading commentaries and, and writing notes. But it's so often in walking that I, I start to pull it together. And so I went for this walk. And I honestly don't, I, I, I can't tell. It was, it was maybe an hour walk. It felt it was both prayer, it was creativity, it was kind of recalling things from my own life that somehow um, gave me insight into or illustrated in some way that this text that I'm going to preach on. It was uh, attentiveness to the story, to myself, to what was going on around. Sometimes I just forgot even while I was, you know, that I was, you know, was supposed to be thinking about this text and I got quite interested in the ducks and the pond not far from where I looked. And I thought, oh, those are such amazing creatures. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I was thinking about John. And so to me, they, they weave together. I think at the heart of them is attentiveness. And it's this shifting, the kaleidoscopic attentiveness. So often we berate ourselves for not being able to pay attention. What we mean is we can't get tunnel vision. <laughs> we can't stay focused on one thing. Uh, but attentiveness is kind of noticing a lot of stuff. And I don't know, when we're out in creation, there's a lot of stuff to notice, um, both again, internally and externally. So to me, at the heart of both prayer, of creativity, of being in God's creation is this paying attention. How does walking help us understand suffering? And what does the, and you have, a, you talk about this, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, what is it, or how does it teach us today? Often when we think about suffering, we, we, by default, go to the language of walking. We talk about, I'm, I'm in a journey. Uh, I'm walking through something right now. There's some instinct that we retain that um, one of the ways we process, come to understand, or at least to come to a place of acceptance of painful things in our life is through walking. And I can also, I mean, that's the number one thing I do when, when something upends me. I find that I, my anxiety was just sitting there trying to process it, uh, skyrockets. I have to go out and walk and get some physical motion involved in thinking and praying through something to come to any place where I can, I can get some clarity or some peace or some kind of find a rhythm through it. So I think that, I, I mean, it's, it's striking to me that uh, the suffering of Jesus involved a, a, a long walk, that the passion of Jesus is actually measured when we relive the 
stations of the cross we're actually walking through some landscape or we may set up some rooms in the church but he actually walked from the praetorium where he was beaten to Golgotha where they 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 nailed him to the cross staggering uh, until Simon of Cyrene helped carry the cross that this was the Via Della Rosa this was a way of suffering obviously that was a literal physical thing that happened but Interesting that, as far as we know, they didn't do that with other prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rome was efficient. Rome wasn't going to do long parades of every prisoner. They're just going to take that person, nail them, hang them. Jesus goes on a walk. And I do think that he's inviting us into the fellowship of his suffering and that walking is somehow, in mysterious ways that I can't quite articulate, is bound up with that. Walking can also play a significant role in our healing and um, even help us exercise um, our, what you call, diabolical inclinations. And I, and I think you have a story about that, and, and this may be helpful. This is my last question around the book, and then I want to end on, on, on some of your teaching and mentoring. But, but help us um, think through how walking can be an integral part of the healing in our lives. Yeah, the story I tell, and it's actually on a provocative chapter called Walking as Exorcism. Uh, A time I was almost murderously angry with my teenage son, Uh, something he had done. And I was so angry that I, I didn't recognize myself. My wife was frightened by me. Um, And thankfully my son wasn't, we didn't know where he was. He just done something and we discovered it. And the anger was volcanic. The anger was almost demonic. And she said, you need to go for a walk. We're on vacation in Oregon and we're right by the beach. So I went for, I don't know how many miles I walked. And the way I describe it is, is stuff began to happen. God began to remind me. God began to meet me. God began to uh, lovingly rebuke me. God began to s- sort of call me to, to who he was making me. And, and the way I describe it is I arrived back, uh, I don't know how long, a couple hours later, addressed and in my right mind to use that, that phrase about Legion. And I, I began to explore uh, at that time, but I, in the book, this notion where Jesus says to Simon, get behind me, Satan, but he doesn't say, here, let me do an exorcism. That in, in, he, he identifies some diabolical influence at work in, in Peter, puts it on Peter's shoulders to deal with this. It's almost like the Cain story. Evil is crouching at your door, wants to take you down. It desires you. You need to deal with it. And so I began to explore this this sort of in-between space where I don't need some deliverance. I don't need to bring in the, the exorcist. I don't need some um, you know deliverance ministry. But there's something going on in me that's deeper than just ordinary human condition stuff. Christ is inviting us into some encounter that we actually have to kind of go and walk out, I think almost literally. It's my favorite chapter of the book in many ways, and probably the one that's going to be strangest for most people. Um, But I do think that a lot of what are walking, whether it's of that kind of scale of, you know, where I'm, I'm saying it's volcanic, almost diabolic, the anger, whatever it happens to be, 
I think a lot of our walking is uh, an invitation to meet with Christ and his spirit in a way that does some deeper work in us that could be spiritual or could be relational or could be emotional or could be physical. So uh, interestingly, you know, in therapy, if you actually have physical injury at some point, sooner than later, they want to get you walking again <laughs> and everything in your body cries, cries out against it and wants to protest and fight it back. But everything, you know, that sh- they just know until you get kind of the body carrying itself, moving again, working those muscles, the healing really won't take place. So I, I, I do think that at a physical level, that's true. But I would I would say it's also happening at these other levels as well. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that chapter. Very helpful. And I, I thankful for your clarification. I used the word exercise, but it really you're really talking about kind of taking agency around our own diabolical inclinations, finding space to to work that out in a way that cooperates with God and, and meets with God. You know, I mean, you know, it's with Peter. It's not only to get behind me, Satan, that Jesus says, but uh, later when Peter's making this big boast, you know, everybody will deny you, not me. And Jesus says in Luke, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I am praying that when it is done, you will stand. He doesn't say I'm praying that to, to you know get Satan off your back. <laughs> so again, there's this weird middle space where Jesus is saying, there's something going on in you, and it is ugly and dangerous. At some point, we may have to kind of bring in the you know the big guns. But right now, go deal with it. Yeah, I think the the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, the root of bitterness. See to it that no one uh, develops a root of bitterness that can grow up and defile many. That there's something I would say it would be anger, bitterness, vengefulness, these sorts of things that can easily become diabolical if let left to their their own devices. But I I think in in virtually all cases the Lord is saying, go do something, go for a walk. <laughs> We've got to figure out a way to get people to walk when they're driving their cars and they have these diabolical inclinations uh, in traffic or <laughs> that's part of the challenges, right? There is no, there's no release. You're still behind the wheel. You're still behind the wheel. But I, I, I was so moved by that chapter. So, so helpful. Let, let's take a turn. Um, I know you've got all kinds of writing projects you're working on. It might be fun to hear about one of those at the very end here, but you're in a season of teaching and mentoring. Um, how did the opportunity to teach at Ambrose University come to you? And what are you doing there? Yeah. So 24 years after being a pastor, and as I just uh, talked about earlier in the podcast, I took a, a nearly 10 years to really figure out the, the, the calling piece. When that got settled in my soul, it got settled very deeply. And I was very, very happy to be a pastor and felt that this was my the thing I was to do the rest of my life. I had another about 12, 14 years of very, very, you know, mostly flourishing pastoring, fruitful pastoring. I went on sabbatical in 2012 and came back roaring, rip roaring to go. And soon after I got back, I began to feel the Lord kind of stirring and loosening sort of the, the soil beneath me. And right around that time, uh, Ambrose, the president of Ambrose, Gordon Smith, had heard about, we had, we'd never met, we knew of each other, was looking for a 
professor of pastoral theology to replace somebody who had been there for a long time and was retiring. And a number of three people, I think, had all suggested me. So he came hunting me. And every time we met, I said, I'm not your guy. And every time we met, he thought even he was more convinced I was. And so this went, this little dance went on for about five or six months. And finally, uh, the combination of the sense that God was this season of pastoring, at least in that way, capacity, frontline, whatever was coming to some close, and that an an opportunity to still somewhat be connected with pastoral ministry, but in some ways increasing my influence in it was being offered at the, at this opportunity to go to Ambrose. And really in a lot of ways, John, I would say one of my life themes is influence that I really want to influence people toward the kingdom, toward a rich life in God. And I, started to, as I, I saw this opportunity at Ambrose, realized if I'm teaching pastoral theology, yeah, I, I'm going to have small classes. We're not a big seminary. So some of my classes are five students. Most of them are usually around 12, 14, 16. But most of these people are going into some leadership role within the church around the world. That's a lot of influence, multiplying influence. So Around that, I thought that's that's actually would be a, a good thing in this season of my life. There would be smaller groups, but in a sort of exponentially increased influence. Teachers hope their ideas stick, or the, the the principles, or or even sometimes processes of learning and um, engaging the world stick. What is the one thing you hope sticks uh, with your students? The God with whom we have to do. That's uh, King James translation of Hebrews four, I forget the verse that when it talks about the, you know, the, the God who, um, whose word is active and alive, it's God with whom we have to do. And I really want what sticks both in terms of what I teach, but also in my example of my life that, that God is, you know, this, this all consuming God uh, in, in a good way. You want to be, you know, Aslan says, I've devoured kingdoms and kings and empires and et cetera, that you, this is a God with whom you want to be deeply, deeply, intimately engaged. You, you don't want a relationship with God that's peripheral. It is at the foundation and center of your life. So the God with whom we have to do. And I, I teach a range of things. I teach almost all the preaching courses. I teach worship courses. I teach, uh, Life of David, I teach a course on reconciliation, uh, some stuff on leadership, um, stuff on pastoral care. But every single one, this deep theme of there is a God, he is beautiful, he is fierce, he is inviting you into his life more than you invite him into yours. And pay attention, do that. Um, move more and more throughout your life toward God at the very center of it. Your podcast, uh, Faith Effects. Um, what's the aim of the podcast? Who do you hope to reach? I co-host it with, a, he, he was a colleague. He's now moved on to a denominational role. His name is Bernie Vanderwall, but he's a systematic theologian. I'm a pastoral theologian. So we cooked up this thing. What if we brought guests on and I asked the, okay, so what question? He asked the, what, you know, what is that question? <laughs> or what, what about question, you know? 
So he kind of probes our, our guests for kind of what's theologically the underpinnings of your thinking or your activity or your art. Uh, like like your podcast, it's kind of a range of people, theologians, artists, filmmakers, uh, politicians. We, we, we just are interested in people. But I'm, yeah, he's sort of talking about, okay, theologically what's underneath that. And my question is more about the, so what? So the effects is what's that German word where the AE are, are sort of joined together? Anyhow, that's that. So it's A E F F E C T S, faith effects. So it's both the affects, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the feelings, the emotions, uh, and the fruit, and, and it's the effects. It's the kind of results of this thing. And we have a lot of fun. It's usually about a half hour interview, sometimes it goes a little over. Uh, we've been doing a lot recently with people who are re- representing uh, people of color. So uh, we, we've uh, our, new, our one coming out soon is with an indigenous uh, is a friend of both of us talking about you know how he thinks theologically and whatnot. So it's it's a lot of fun actually. Just these super interesting guests, and our approach is basically find out what they care about. It's very much your approach. Find out what the person cares about, and then kind of let them let them loose. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah. I enjoyed listening. Love to end on this final question. What are you working on these days with respect to writing? I know you've released this novel uh, not too long ago, and you've you said you've mentioned earlier that you've got a couple projects you're working on. But what's coming? The novel is 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 book one of a trilogy on the life of David. And I've got, uh, so one of the projects, about 200 pages into book two on that. The first one's called David Rise, and the second one we call David Rain, and the third one we call David Descend. Uh, I've also uh, about 300 pages into a book on a little village in France that was involved in World War II in rescuing several thousand Jewish people. And they put their lives, it was a Christian group, a, a group of uh, French uh, Calvinists or Huguenots, and uh, under the direction of uh, André Tocme, a pastor, he organized the pastors in the communities roundabout, and together they uh, rescued, estimates vary between 2,500 to 8,000 people, many of them Jewish people. And... I have been interested in this story for about 20 years, but uh, last year I went, I was on sabbatical and 12 days living in this village and then COVID hauled us home. So I carried on with my research and my writing, but at some point I I need to get back to that village and do some on the ground stuff. But I've decided to write it as a novel because it's just a too big a story. I'm not a historian. So I, and there's great histories on this community and the people but there's also um, people who who are part of this larger story that probably never met in real life, even though they're in the same place at the same time. One of the liberties you can take in a novel is people that uh, you can't demonstrate that they met or if they did what they talked about. Well, you can invent that if you're a novelist. So Albert Camus, the Nobel Prize winning novelist, wrote The Plague in this community in this time. And uh, Virginia Hall, they've just made a movie about her on Netflix called A Call to Spy. Virginia Hall spent the last years of, of the war in this community organizing resistance workers. She's, she's probably the most effective spy, uh, American spy working for the British government in France in World War II. 
uh, Klaus Barbie, this brutal, sadistic Nazi intersexist story. So all of these things, as the more I researched, the more I thought, oh my goodness, this is big. And I need to put it on a really, really big canvas. And the biggest canvas I could think of is it's got to be a novel. Yeah, thank you. Mark, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. You are a beautiful person and um, so appreciate your art and the creative work that you do. And I know the many ways that you're helping raise up the next generation of leaders in Canada and across the world. So thank you so, so much for being with us today. John, what a pleasure. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.